My name is John Crotech, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. Our veteran guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero, is retired United States officer, Lieutenant Colonel Kevin T. Connolly. Kevin is a Special Forces trained soldier. He was assigned with MACV when he was in Vietnam. His story is very interesting, and we've been working at this for a while. This is the fourth time I've been in his office. We've been having comms problems, but we finally got it figured out. I met Kevin several years ago. He's very, very active in his community, not only for the local veterans, but also for his business, which is Apollo SunGuard. And Apollo SunGuard is an innovative company that is a U.S. manufacturer, manufacturing products to help protect us from the sun. They've got all kinds of cool things going on here. I've seen his factory. It's very impressive. And uh, he is a an advocate, not only for veterans, but also for workers and I got to tell you, it's it's an honor and a pleasure to have him here on Straight Out of Combat Radio. Hey, Kevin. Well, it's great to be here, and I, John, I really have to compliment you on your carrying the voice of veterans to the public. Good job. Well, thanks for that, Kevin. And uh, you know, it's what we both do. I'm an Army guy, of course. I was an NCO. You're the officer guy, and uh, I just know that the veterans from your era have been incredible. You know, you guys have really. Um, your story, and we'll talk about it today, you know, coming back from Vietnam and what you guys had to endure, set the stage for all these younger guys coming back now. You know, you learn things the hard way and uh, you've been very accommodating to the newer guys. So thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. But I'd also like to point out, it might be the officer that has the idea to accomplish a certain item. It'll never get done without the NCO. For instance, an officer might say, tomorrow we're going to go out to the range and train the troops on firing the M15, M16. And uh, that's where it stops. It's the sergeant that lays on the ammunition, arranges for the best truck to be out there at noon to feed the guys, arranges transportation out there, takes care of all the thousand little details that need to get done to make things happen. So NCOs are the lifeblood of any military organization. Well, thanks for that. And uh, there's a lot of truth to that. But let's, you know, let's, Let's talk about Kevin Connolly, the soldier, the man, the uh, entrepreneur, the innovator. Tell us how you, where you grew up, what was the Connolly family like, and uh, and how you made it to the Army. Tell us about that, Kevin. Well, I was born in New York, and my father was uh, owned Connolly's Restaurants in New York City. He was in the restaurant business for many, many years. And his success in the industry managed to put me through to Notre Dame, where I graduated uh, in 1962 with a degree in marketing. But also, I was an ROTC student. You were a boxer there, too, weren't you? Yeah, I fought in the the light heavy division. Nice. And I lost the championship the last night to a split decision. Who was the guy? Well, a guy named Jack Hildebrand. I was fortunately fighting a guy with a glass jaw. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. So I won the first fight with a knockout, and the other one I lost on points. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at a picture hanging in your office. By the way, this is a very impressive office. Like it. So, so your dad's in the restaurant business. He sends you to Notre Dame. You're a boxer and an ROTC guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I graduate, and I'm commissioned as a second lieutenant in the armor branch. And I, I was in freezing cold up there in South Bend, Indiana. So I selected all the army locations that were in warm climates because you put, you fill out your dream sheet when you're commissioned. And of course, they sent me to Germany in the winter. <laughs> yeah, like that worked, huh? <laughs> you thought you had it roped. Oh, yes. and... I've never been so cold in my life as been standing in the turret of a tank with no heaters on in the middle of a German winter. Oh, man. I get you. So, you know, what was the mission over there? Well, actually, it was the height of the Cold War. Right. And I was assigned to the 4th Army Division and I came in as a, a tank platoon leader. I had five M60 tanks under my command 
And uh, our job was in the case the Russians came across the border, we were there to stop them. And how long would that have lasted, you think? Well, the concept behind it was, and I'll point out that every one of our tanks was fully combat loaded. I'm talking with full ammunition and gear, and we were trained that upon a two-hour notice, we had to be able to deploy in the field and be able to move into our combat blocking positions. So the concept was there to basically act as a blocking force and delaying force so that the main United States forces could get over to Europe to reinforce us. That that was the drill. Hmm. So it was a... I can remember my, I was in Germany my first two months and they had what they call readiness tests. So therefore, you get a notice anytime, day or night, anytime, any day of the week, you get a notice alert. You had to get the entire battalion out of its barracks, out of its base camp and deployed in the field to their alert positions. Right. And you had two hours to accomplish that. So alert was called at two o'clock in the morning. I raced down there. I'm a bear. My platoon is there. Check in internally. Yes, we're ready to roll. I radio to the company commander that my platoon is ready to roll. And suddenly I get the announcement, move out. Move out to where? I don't know where the position is. I've only just been there a few weeks. Oh, gosh. Like they're expecting you. So what So what happened? So I was a lead platoon. I moved on out. And I just find out about 20 minutes later, I'm taking the entire 72 tank battalion down the, walk, the wrong road. Oh. I've never seen 72 tanks on a narrow road trying to neutral steer to reverse directions. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but it sounds like something out of a movie. It sounds yeah. like a good second lieutenant story. Yeah, yeah. The butter bar story. So what happens? So, so you guys are trying to put everything in reverse to get to the right place? Or? Oh, yeah. The, the, the neutral steer is where you lock one track and go forward on the other. And you can, you can, do a, you can turn in place without taking space. Right. Especially pivot. So we got back and got in propositions. <laughs> God, that's a great story. So so you're freezing your rear end off. You know, your mission is to stop the Russians if it's a full-scale European invasion. And how did you – you weren't – Special Forces then yet? No. I went on nine months as a tank platoon leader. Then I became a, the battalion commander was impressed with my performance. And there's, and every battalion had what they call a scout platoon or an Norman cavalry platoon. Right. And uh, I was selected as the Army armored cavalry platoon leader, which was a real honor because at that time, an armored, little armored cavalry platoon, I had two tanks, two M60 tanks, uh, a mortar tube, four deuce mortar, an infantry section with 11 man squad, fleet scout section, and uh, we were like a little miniature army in one little platoon. That's pretty cool. So, our job was basically to be the eyes and ears of the battalion and also act as the blocking force for certain things. And part of our training, though, was on demolitions. In other words, we had to be trained to know how to drop trees, drop bridges, create delaying actions in case the Russians came across the border. So we're all demo qualified in that as well. Interesting. So then how long did you do that? So I had nine months of, uh, as, a tank, as a recon platoon leader. Then after that, they moved me to a staff position uh, where I became the battalion S3 Air. Right. And our job was basically to uh, be able to call in, coordinate directly with the Air Force for air support. And this is in the mid-60s? This is uh, 62 to 64. Okay. Okay. So... And that was the height of the Cold War, you know. I don't think well, we know when the wall came down, but that was full. We we were always expecting a, a Russian invasion. They were pretty serious about this stuff, and there was a historically some very close calls where it almost happened. Well, I think wasn't it nineteen sixty two? They had the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's correct. So yeah, it took us into that with John Kennedy and all that. They were bringing nukes in our theater and. Yeah, I was at Fort Knox undergoing the armor officer basic course there. When all that was going on? And uh, one of my goals, I wanted to become airborne qualified. Right. So I put in for airborne training and got declined because the Army said, we're not dropping too many M60 tanks out of airplanes. <laughs> and so who needs an airborne reserve tanker? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that kind of didn't fit at the time. But, uh, but uh, so... But did you go on to get your airborne and special forces or? No, that's not how it happened. Yep. After 
two years in the army, suddenly there's this brush fire war in Asia. And there was uh, 20,000 US advisors in Vietnam. And they were looking for war advisors to go over to work with the local Vietnamese militia forces. So to get assigned, you had to at least have a minimum of 18 month troop duty, which I qualified for. Right. And good efficiency reports and recommendations from your commanding officer. And then you could get selected for the special training. So I put in for it, was selected, and then reported to Fort Bragg, where I went through uh, two months of special forces training and language training. and went on for an additional number of months at Monterey Language School to learn to speak Vietnamese and uh, arrived in Vietnam in March of 1965. Now, did you go there as an S special forces unit? Did you go on a... I was part of what they call the Military Assistance Command Vietnam. So MACV. MACV. And uh, sort of the patch of MACV tells a lot of stories historically. You see a, a red patch with a sword of the United States, and on the top of the patch you see the broken wall of China in yellow. And that symbolizes the flow of communism coming through China down into the Delta. Now that's why they made that, or they didn't know they... That was the patch, the heraldry behind the patch. Right. Interesting. Which was showed how they had totally no understanding of what was going on. The Chinese had very little to do with the Vietnamese. In fact, the Chinese and the Vietnamese have been historical adversaries for a thousand years. So the Chinese are looking at this patch and they're thinking, holy cow, what are these Americans doing here? This is something deeper than... Deeper. That just shows a total misunderstanding of the nature of the war to begin with. Wow. That's something interesting. At the highest levels. So, you know, go figure, you know, we can talk for hours on that subject, you know. So, so you're with MACV and, and what's your mission, Kevin? Well, we were assigned down to a five-man team down the Delta. I was a lieutenant, I had a captain for a boss, and we had three NCOs. One was an operations sergeant, one was a medic, and one was uh, just an infantry advisor. And we basically, over the period of year, I would participate in about... 150 combat operations the time I was there. Yeah. I was the only guy on the team not to get hit. Every one of the team members earned purple hearts. Fortunately, none of them were killed. Now, what were you guys doing? Taking rounds or we were, mortar fire? Or? Well, basically, we would go out with the Vietnamese units on, on search and destroy operations and maneuvers. And uh, usually two of us. Uh, they always wanted two Americans, at least our commanding, our CO one of it. He wanted to make sure at least there was two guys together. With this. So I go out with one of the NCOs with a, a Vietnamese regional force company, and uh, we go out. I'd be their advisors. Uh, I have to be very frank and say I learned more from them than they learned from me. Yeah. Except the, the importance I was there for was that if they needed air support, I was the guy on the ground that could get the contact with the Air Force to bring him in. So who was their enemy? Would the NVA and the Viet Cong or what was? At the time, it was mostly, it was totally Viet Cong down the Delta. Okay. But the Viet Cong were, uh, I would basically say they were absolutely vicious, vicious criminals. They had killed, murdered 5,000 school teachers in the Mekong Delta by 1965. Huh. And the only crime these school teachers committed was the fact that they weren't communists. They were just neutral, independent. And the VC only wanted communist teachers teaching the kids. Wow. Can you? Wow. See, that's stuff that we don't read about. Is there, is there anything, is there, are there, describe some instances where you were maybe one of your missions that you just went, holy cow, this is, this is serious. Well, one of the times I was, uh, Really amazing. Entire regional force company of 100 men mounted in two man sandpans going up to the Plano Reeds and, and during the rainy season where everything's flooded. And we're going up there as part of an operation to be a blocking force for main force sweeping through. And it was a three or four week day, week long operation, sitting in sandpans, paddling all the way up there. <laughs> and then one morning, Toward dawn, we paddle into a position to get ready for blocking. And as dawn comes up and sunlight lights up the area, a U.S. Army helicopter flies over and drops a red smoke grenade in our position, identifying us as a VC unit. 
If I hadn't been there to correct the situation, they put a pole and airstrike in on the friendly forces. Fortunately, I was able to stop that. We have heard about friendly fire before. You know, I, I guess what that points out is the confusion and the chaos on the battlefield. That it gets confusing. Oh, yeah. um, the fog of war, as they call it. Right, the fog of war. So, how would you describe the Vietnamese people? Incredibly generous and very warm, very loving, very good people. Uh, when I used to go with my counterparts into these rural villages, Vietnamese ladies would gather on the sides and walk in again and saying, Dep try, Dep try. Well, Dep try in Vietnamese translated as handsome son. So it was at least one place in the world I was considered a good looking. Oh, man. Yeah, you guys were like gladiators coming into the village. Uh, that's funny. You know, it's just interesting, you know, because we always talk about invading forces. They didn't, did they look at you guys as saviors or? Not really. Basically, the Vietnamese people wanted to be left alone. And there's another lesson learned I'll point out. Um, you have roughly 10% of the VC communists, 10% were strong government independent types, and 80% just want to be left alone and grow their rice and raise their families and be left alone. Well, the VC were always trying to get the people to come on their side. And the government, of course, would try theirs. But in this one particular case, uh, the VC squad, 10 people, infiltrated a neutral village near a road. And uh, as a government convoy went by, they opened up with rifle fire. Well, the convoy commander stops the vehicles that take cover and call in for air support. And the fighter craft are coming in. And meanwhile, the VC moved back into the jungle or back in the rice paddies out of the area. And the village is heavily damaged by the fighter aircraft. Hmm. Later that night, the VC would come back, visit the village and say, when, ask the villagers one question, who did this to you? Of course, it was the government did this to us. So the survivors to survive the attack all became ardent VC supporters. Of course, the purpose of the attack wasn't to attack the convoy. That was a subterfuge to get the people to make a decision to join the VC. So it was psychological operations at its best. It was misuse of power. And that's why calling an airstrike in an area and to treat me Air Force is nothing more than long-range artillery. But you've got to make sure of your target because you can end up making more enemies than you kill. Well, that's one of the – That's I'm glad you pointed that out because that's one of the things that we read about, that I've read about, you know, the hearts and the minds. And it sounds like, you know, you describe the patch, you describe the way these, you know, infiltrators, the you know, the Viet Cong are working. They were working on the hearts and minds, too. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they were very, very dedicated to what they were doing. Fanatics. So you described, you know, members of your team all got hit and thank God none of them died. And when did that tour end? Well, in March of 66, uh, I finished my tour, managed to squeeze in one little R&R trip to uh, well, actually went to Bangkok and I squeezed the second one into Australia. What was Bangkok like? It was, uh, it was very, it was interesting. It was a, a very fun place and food was great and it was just a very pleasant place to visit. Yeah, we've heard stories about Bangkok. They said the place is just crazy. Wow. Yeah. So, so in Australia, was that just kind of the same deal there too, or a little bit well, different? It was not different. We flew. I, it was at the time in '66. There was an R and R in Australia, so I had to bum a ride in an Australian Air Force cargo plane hmm. that left Saigon and flew three days trip to get down to Australia. Wow! And uh, we we get off the plane, the old C one thirty Air Force. Uh, Australian Air Force plane, and we, the customs agent is coming off. Hey, I'll give you a ride. And by the way, how about coming to my house for dinner tonight? So he took us to his house for dinner, then drove us into Sydney because the airbase was 30 miles outside of, of town. And it was, I found the Australian people's friendly and cordial and delight to be with. Awesome. So you got off a couple of times. You guys are running all these missions. Uh, and again, you know, thank God nobody got hurt. You're seeing some things already taking place on the ground, some maybe mistakes or oversight. Yeah. 
And so you, you went back to the States and then you went back to Vietnam. Well, I went, got back to the United States and I was working for, got released from active duty and I was working for IBM in New York City and bored stiff. <laughs> oh, you know, something, I'm thinking the jungles and all this action you guys are seeing and then you go to. Now I'm selling office equipment in New York City and it was pretty boring. Yeah, yeah, I bet. So you did what? Well, the only good thing about my trip there was that on weekends I go out to the eastern part of Long Island to Southampton. Nice. Which was like a big summer gathering place for young people. And there I met my bride to be. And uh So there was a good thing about working for IBM. Yes, there was. So anyway, I arrived back at the same time I see an advertisement from the US State Department, the Agency for International Development is looking for Vietnam experienced people to go back as uh, economic development officers. So I applied and was accepted. And I went through more State Department training, more language training, and uh, arrived back in country in June of 1968. Now, before we get there, did you, when you came out of Vietnam, of course, the country was in turmoil. Or was it, it probably not as bad as 68, 69, but did you notice anything in your transition? We were coming. We were despised. And uh, we were, I had one sergeant that in San Francisco was spit upon as he's walking down the street and people screamed at you, baby colors. And it was all a result of, I believe, uh, a propaganda campaign executed by the Soviet Union at the time that funded the American anti-war effort to the tune of $25 million. You know, probably the best money they ever spent because they really helped sour the American people on aiding the Self-Vietnamese, which resulted in our ultimate withdrawal in 1971, 72. Right. 73. Probably some other things we don't know about, but, it, you know, I was in the course, I was in the grade school when, uh, when Vietnam was at its height. And um, all I can remember is all of the riots and the things going on television and Maybe the media hasn't changed that much. I don't know. But they were always just showing those kinds of things. And it seemed like, you know, even as a seventh, eighth grader, I was wondering, why are we in Vietnam? You know? Well, it's probably a very good question to ask. And uh, to this date, I don't know. I, well, what I do know, what I've learned since then, is that Harry Truman used the U.S. Navy to transport the French Army back to Vietnam in 1947 over the objections of Ho Chi Minh, who was our ally against the Japanese in World War II. Ho Chi Minh pleaded with Roosevelt not to do this, and the French told Truman, if they didn't get their colony back, they would sabotage the Marshall Plan and not allow Germany to rebuild. So we're talking about politics at a high, high level. Yeah. Yeah. So we basically engaged in activities that forced Ho Chi Minh to go to the Soviets for help. Wow. And we spent mm. close to a trillion dollars and 58,000 dead Americans later. Yeah. Tragic. So, so you go back as an advisor in 1967? 68. 68, which is the Tet Offensive. Just after the Tet Offensive. Right. What's going, what's going on there? And uh, what we're, well, our job was always working with the local people. And I was in charge of economic development building schools, bridges, agriculture advisor, introducing new kinds of rice that, that would require giving eight times the yield of normal rice when we're given an acre of land. So make much economic progress. But there's an interesting uh, story about one time we had helped build a school for the locals. We'd gone out to a rural village and said, what do you folks want? Because we're trying to show our government cares, because I'm always out there with my Vietnamese counterpart. Right. And they say, yes, we'd like a school. So they build a school, and sure enough, the VC come in a few months later and blow the school up. And, of course, the people say, too bad, they just blew up the government school. So we go back out to the village and say, what do you folks want? And they tell the our Vietnamese leader, well, we'd like a school. When they said, well, this time we're going to do it differently. We're going to get you the cement and the rebar and the lumber. And you build the school. So they did, and the school was built up. But it wasn't the government school anymore. 
was their school. And they took ownership of it. And when the Viet Cong were trying to come in to blow it up again, there was a fierce firefight. They weren't going to let the VC blow up their school. So the lesson learned here is you've got to get people involved in their own security and their own defense. You, and you bring in... Take ownership of it, yeah. Yeah, you can't come in there with uh, U.S. line forces, brigades, and divisions, because they can't tell the good guys from the bad guys. Right. But the good guys, Vietnamese, and any country, whether in Afghanistan today, the local people can tell the good guys from the bad guys. They've got to be brought into their own, own defense, provide for their own defense. But there's a... Conflict between that and the concepts that our active military and our brass adhere to. Special forces type people, people like myself, totally believe in the way you fight an insurgency is with the local people, aiding and helping them to defend themselves. But the military industrial complex likes to use a lot of equipment, a lot of tanks, planes, Ships, aircraft carriers, all these big defense items, budget stuff, which doesn't get the job done. But it does make a lot of profits for the defense contractors. And you got these same generals, sadly enough, when they turn around on time, and they tend to use tactics that use their equipment. Instead of doing what gets the job done, they use tactics that tends to propagate the use of all this equipment. And when these generals retire, who do they go to work for? Defense contractors. I'll give a case in point. General Mattis just retired from the Marine Corps. He now works for General Dynamics. And there's probably a slew of them that are consultants and, you know. You know, it certainly makes you wonder the 50,000 foot picture. You know, a lot of times when you, you talk about insurgency, and which is basically what we've been dealing with the last 20 years. And the question's been posed, and of course, without getting into politics, the question's been posed is, you know, what have we really accomplished there? You know, with the recent wars, and we've talked to many people on the show and sometimes off the air that they wonder, you know. Well, I'll just point a case in point. You take the last 20 years, the United States has spent $2 trillion on Afghanistan and Iraq, and we've lost 7,000 young people killed. And the question I ask is, what did we accomplish? Nothing. Yeah. I mean, it can definitely uh, raise your eyebrows and make you scratch your head and think about it. But, but at the same time, we do need a strong natural defense. You've got to make it. You've got to be strong enough that no one dares mess with us. But recently, uh, a few years ago, I toured the, uh, a plant over in Orlando, which makes to help fire a missile. And I can tell you as a tanker, and if I had a thousand tanks coming across the horizon at me, I'd love to have the Hellfire missile on my side. But our enemies aren't coming in the form of a thousand tanks. They're coming in the form of a ship pulling to the port of Tampa with a nuclear weapon in its hold. Yeah. And all the defense money you spend on Hellfire missiles doesn't provide for national security. We need a much broader picture than that. Couldn't agree with you more. You know, there's it's definitely the 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 conflict has changed quite a bit over the the years, and it's definitely a lot different than it was. You know, ten years ago or twenty years ago, some of the philosophies are the same. We speak the same language, but the lines are blurred now. It seems like. Well, I think what we need to do is to have a government that wages peace. In other words, the root cause of the war, poverty, injustice, ignorance. Why don't we, could we have taken that $2 trillion we spent in the last 20 years? How much good could have done that? We had used that to build schools and opportunities and education. Because people around the world, no matter where you are, they want to live in security. They want a good job. They want a decent place to live. And they want education for their children. Well, it's pretty much the same wherever you go. And, you know, I was reading about GDP this morning. What are the 25, you know, poorest nations and what do they put out in output and how much people make? And it, the thing about Americans, and, you know, I'm an American, you're an American. There's lots of Americans, 300 plus million. 
And a lot of them haven't been outside this country. And I can assure you, and as many of the veterans that have been on our show that have been in conflicts overseas, the rest of the world doesn't live like we do. You know, there's this conception uh, by many people that I talk to. Of course, we used to lead trips to South America and they were just blown away by the poverty because they had never left the country. And so you raised a good point that, you know, we do have an extremely wealthy nation with resources, unbelievable resources. There's probably more food in one of our local supermarkets than some of these, than an entire city in Peru. Uh, makes Yeah. There are some ironic things there. We don't necessarily have the best quality of life uh, in the world. There's seven countries in Europe which have a longer life, longer health span, better health spans, longer lifestyles, longer lives. But 30 years ago, something strategically happened in the United States, and this is not military. I'm talking about 30 years ago, a high school degree was a passport to the average American, to a good job in American industry. Right. But what happened was that uh, Wall Street in league with the, in league with big business and aided and abetted by both political parties encouraged the closing down of U.S. factories and the building them in China to get cheap labor, no environmental rules, no worker safety rules, bring cheap products here, and you can force your American manufacturers out of business because they can't compete with that. Don't you remember the days when things were made in America and you, you could count that they were good quality, they'd last freaking forever? And then I remember that time because then all these things started coming in made in China, made in Japan. Sure. And the product was inferior and everybody knew it, but they wanted to pay cheap prices. There was a time, and there's a time, even to this day, when a product says made USA, that's like saying sterling on silver. It meant quality. Right. And we still have some good quality American manufacturers. And I'd like to say that maybe Apollo Sunguard, my company, is one of them. And in our company, uh, we will not have an unhappy customer. We'll make sure that customer gets the best quality product with the best warranty. And also, the one thing I learned as an Army officer, they drilled into you as a young officer that you had the responsibilities to accomplish a mission and take care of your people. And you accomplish one at the expense of the other, you fail as a leader. You got to get the job done and you got to take care of your people. So I run the company the same way. All my health and all my employees make a living wage and they all have health insurance and the company pays 80% of the premium. Because that's what the army told me to do. You take care of your people. And it's a good practice, you know. And, and I was talking to a World War II guy, a little bit older than, than us. And uh, he, I asked him, I said, you know, what has changed in the last 50, 60 years? And he said, the people. The mindset of the people that everybody is, of course, we the show's gotten a little bit off track, but we're talking about relevant things here. He said that the pe- the it's all about me now, and and a lack of community. And of course, you can go to places where the community's still strong and that, but but there's this overwhelming sense in America, it seems these days, that we become this me me society. It's possible, but I think what you're seeing here is when you destroy the, the, the severe damage the American working class took it with the loss of a decent paying jobs. 30 years ago, a guy could have a job and enough to support him, his family. And now he's got two jobs and his wife's got a job and they're barely scraping by. Yeah. Because the it's- old days of working for a quality company that had health care benefits for the employees, that's a rarity in most of the United States today. And of course, everything's predicated on bottom line these days. Yeah. Automation, bottom line, you know. We need, we need to change that. We need to take back take back what makes America great. Was you take care of your people, you grow up, create a great product, and you pull together as a community. I couldn't agree with you more. But we kind of got off track, but it's good. Let's go back to the story then, and then we'll, we'll, we can talk about some of these things. So you got so you were an advisor in Vietnam. Yes. And you came back in 1970? 1971. And what was that transition like? It was, I have to describe the feeling I had when I first came back from Vietnam in 1966. 
in San Francisco, just finished a year. And I had this burning desire to return to Vietnam. I wanted to go back with the troops that I was with, feeling that what I had learned could help keep them alive. And uh, finally, over a period of time, the, the, the urge subsided, but again, came alive again in 68 when I went back because I really felt that we were accomplishing something and building something great there. Okay, so that was the first one. And then the second one, you were, it was a different thought process coming well, back? I saw, I, I saw more of the, the difference between me and a lot of Vietnam veterans is that uh, many of the uh, veterans have served only with combat line units, never saw the full picture in Vietnam. Only, the only Vietnamese they knew is the ones they were looking at through their rifle sights. Right. And I, having speaking Vietnamese and worked with the local people, my experience was very different. And also I saw it from a military as well as a civilian economic side. I saw the, the full picture. I saw what, what we're doing, the really good things we're doing and the things that needed an improvement. And again, I, I go right back to the use of U.S. mine forces in an insurgent situation is a bad mix. Because you can't tell from the good guys from the bad guys, and you end up alienating the very people you came to help. So it sounds to me like Vietnam was one big fiasco. Yes. In, in, in your opinion, it was just, or in a lot of people's opinions, but it sounds like we, we didn't get a lot of things right there. No, and I'll give you another statistic. During the height of the Vietnam War, 40% of all the cargoes arriving on ships, 40% of them never reached consignee. They got hijacked in the black market. And where did those products go? <laughs> black market. <laughs> Just, uh, uh -huh. they, so there was, it sounds to me like there was a mini economy there outside of the economy. Oh, yeah, it was. Uh, was that Americans involved in that or was there was some Americans involved and, uh, and Vietnamese exploiters in a chaotic type of situation. Gosh, have they written any books on that? Not much, not not too much. But, Interesting. But, yeah. But you take a look at the, the amount of money that's been spent. Two trillion dollars in Afghanistan and Iraq. I wonder where that money's yeah, going. Right <laughs> a lot of it went to defense contractors, but yeah. But, uh, a lot of terrible, terrible waste. And that's when we talk about the wealth and how it's spent, you know, and there I grew up, they say, follow the money, you know, where does the money lead to? And then you'll find out the real story in today's day and age. And, you know, money can do a lot of good things and money can also, it can sway a lot of things too in the opposite direction. So, you know, when you talk about the that complex military industrial complex, you know, it, 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 there's a larger picture here. Yeah. But I have a little quote right? on the Barrett's wall when I first got to Germany. There was a saying painted, a, a poem written on the Barrett's wall by an author unknown. And the poem read, God and the soldier we adore in times of danger, but not before. The danger passes and all things righted. God's forgotten and the soldiers slighted. Somebody wrote that one of the barracks? Yeah. Wow, you remembered it all yeah. these years. <laughs> it's powerful. It's, you know, particularly hit home as soldiers coming back from Vietnam as mm. we were treated like dirt. In fact, it was so bad that you couldn't even get jobs. You had to conceal the fact you ever served in the military. And uh, even in fact, the state local governments didn't want you and the federal government didn't want you either. Sounds to me like the whole Vietnam War and those participants in it that the they just uh, you know our leadership in the country just wanted to forget about it. Oh, and uh, you were all a bunch of baby killers, and that you took a and the federal government had to pass a law offering uh, job and opportunities to Vietnam veterans because they were so slighted. Wow. So, what was the transition for you like personally? Well. Uh, I couldn't get my job back with IBM. <laughs> I didn't want it anyway. Yeah. So anyway, I invented, involved in a bunch of uh, entrepreneurial type activities. And one of the times, uh, actually I got hired by the 
Suffolk County, New York, to be the director of the Industrial Development Agency, mostly based on uh, my experience being with the Agency for International Development in Vietnam. And I was involved with issuing about $500 million worth of tax-exempt bonds to grow industry. Hmm. And then years later, I decided to come to Florida. And the sad thing about Florida, which I, and I love the state, and I'll give you a little background, I ended up, after being with the county, I saw an opportunity to create a housing project because all these jobs are creating people that need a place to live. So the project was very successful. I bought myself a 43-foot Albert and Trawler, twin diesels. Nice. Cruised from New York to Florida and cruised into Florida waters and fell in love with the state and moved here a year later. What year was that? That was in uh, 91. And uh, it took me a while, but Florida's economy is different than most other states. Most people don't realize that. Yeah. Most states have about 9% of their economic base in manufacturing. Florida's got 4%. It gauges in tourism and second home building. building. There's no diversity. So in any time there's like, um, we have here in Florida, for anybody listening, we have the red tide that devastates our water, this bacteria, which takes away people off our beaches and then nobody wants to come. Well, you just nailed it because we are one more red tide away from a total economic disaster in the state of Florida because we don't have the diversity. The one thing about a manufacturing company, it makes a product that leaves the area to the rest of the country internationally. Service-based economies, you can't have a restaurant and serve your Sarasota customers by locating in Georgia. No. You're going to be here. Yep. Manufacturing does not have to be here. And if there's nobody here in the restaurant, that that company's not going to stay there for very long. That's right. But the manufacturer creates its growth, its economy, its cash flow by sales outside the region where a commercial entity relies on the local population for its cash flow. And in a red tie situation, if your economy is based in tourism, they're not going to come here. Yeah. That's true. And then there's, because you don't have an economic diversity in the county, it creates a chain reaction that creates the potential for a, a very serious economic disaster. Interesting. So, so let's talk about how did you acquire and start the company that you have now, Apollo Sungard. Oh. So you're on your Alvin, you come down, you're cruising, you fall in love with Florida. You're looking, you know, you're you're all about economic development, and you can definitely see it and hear yes. it. What happened? How'd well, you how'd you end up here? First few years I started, I thought we could the same economic financing that we did with tax exempt bonds up in New York, we could do it here in Florida, but that was not the case because our market up in New York was manufacturing trying to grow and Florida didn't have much manufacturing. So that didn't work out and suddenly uh, my wife is reading a newspaper ad saying manufacturing business for sale owner ill and it was this Small company called Zebra Cool Shade, which had been founded by a South African entrepreneur that didn't have his marketing right. Was it in this location we're in now? Same location, it was, but it was a lot messier and dirtier in those days. Yeah, it was half the size, and it was also hmm. a bunch of old steel pipes laying around, a few rolls of fabric, and dirt an inch thick, and everything. So. <laughs> We typically, You're probably wondering, what's going on here? Yeah. So yeah. anyway, the gentleman sold me the company for a promissory note. I took over. His mistake was that he had a great idea, but he had marketing was wrong, and he had developed a contract with a playground company to provide shade, and he managed to tick the playground company off, and he lost his only contract, and with that, he said, the heck with it. Didn't want any part of it, yeah. And we've been in the process of building it since then. What year was that you had it? Uh, 97. So you've had it 24 years. 20, 22 years, 23 years. 23 now. years. And uh, what got me intrigued was this fabric that came in from South Africa blocked 96 to 98% of the ultraviolet, but lowered the temperature by 15 to 20 degrees below the cover because it created a natural circulation of air. 
Same thing as a it's a biomimicry of a shave tree. Is it breathable? Is it breathe? Is, is the fabric that you use, Kevin, breathable? Totally breathable. Wow! So you get the airflow through it. It makes it. It's not waterproof because you make it waterproof, then you don't get the airflow. So whoever's listening, go to apollosunguard.com and because uh, these are really cool. And I'm sitting in Kevin's office here, and we're looking at these these beautiful wing awnings out here in front, and definitely. A lot of benefits to those. So a lot of these designs that you guys are doing in Apollo Sun Garden, they're your designs. Everything's custom. We are very blessed to have uh, one of our partners on board is a very talented engineer. And everything we do is custom designed. And we've got some very, very unique products. What we're working on now, I'm pretty excited about, coming in line with a new uh, carport system that is part solar and part shade structure. So each these each each uh, bay or twenty seven by eighteen bay will be able to generate about four kW of power. So if I'm Elon Musk and I'm listening to this, let's just say let's play a little role playing here. And of course, everybody knows Elon Musk and Tesla and you know his innovative um, electric cars. And what would what would Elon Musk see in this product? Why would he want what you're making here at Apollo SunGuard? Well, we did a study and where we shade an electric vehicle charging station, the vehicle charges 15 minutes faster and uses 2KW less power per charge. So there's an advantage if you shade your electric vehicles, they'll perform better. And nobody's shading anything anywhere for these vehicles. No, it's an uphill battle. We got, we have, we want a federal contract to provide electric vehicle charging stations to the federal fleets. We've sold thousands of stations to the federal government and not one shade structure. Wow. You know, well, there you go again, you know, all these great ideas and it seems like uh, there's always impediments to great ideas. And, you know, we talk about what Americans truly love and you exemplify it, you know, free enterprise, free enterprise creates or enhances creativity and it just you know that's what americans want and that's what people want you know they want to be able to do creative things with their with their lives and you're definitely doing it here well one thing i know is that you can't do it by yourself you've got to surround yourself with some pretty great people and i've this company we're very blessed by having some very talented dedicated people and it shows in the product for sure and in the atmosphere here at your business. You know, I think it's been four times I've been here now trying to get this one interview going. And I don't mind coming back. I just don't like wasting all your time. No, but never wasting time to do that. Thanks. But so, so, so here we are, you know, do you have a, getting back to the show, you know, with veterans and, and your experience as a combat officer. You went through the transition. It hasn't been easy. You know, of course, the help back then was probably minimal compared to what a lot of people are getting now. And, you know, what do you want the general public, the non-veteran to know about veterans and especially combat veterans? Good question, John. And I think when you're dealing with your combat veterans, you're dealing with somebody who has seen a pretty negative side of life. And these people have, many of them, some paid the highest possible price in loss of life. Some came back very badly wounded. Others came back physically unscathed, but with PTSD. And every combat soldier, to some degree, has some level of PTSD. All right. And they paid a high price for the freedoms we enjoy. But in the words of an Irish philosopher, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And if you ignore that, the ultimate price you'll pay is chains and slavery. So what these veterans have earned for us, our independence, which makes America a very unique, shining star, as I think Reagan put it, the Chinese, shining city on the hill. And the example to the rest of the world with our democracy and our government. We need to keep possession of that and take pride in it and don't allow these forces in short-term gain to erode our core values. Uh, I had a letter published in today's uh, Herald Tribune talking about an experience I had as a young second lieutenant in Germany. Hmm. 
in those days, a lieutenant made about 200 bucks, 220 a month is our pay. Well, was that a lot of money back then? Not a lot. What's <laughs> up? What you guys were doing? No. But anyway, we found out that if we moved off post and out of the bachelor BOQ, uh, we could get an extra 50 bucks quarters allowance. So me and a few lieutenants did that. We rented an apartment from a German family and um, we were doing fine. And the German landlord was very cordial. He'd invite us down to his kitchen for a few beers every now and then. And one night when we're down there, he had a few beers and he started talking about what life was like in Germany in the 1930s. How the economy had been so devastated because of the uh, repressive payments that France and England had put on the German government had basically hmm. destroyed the German economy. And then he said something which actually shocked us. He said he and a lot of Germans liked Hitler. And we were shocked. And he said, why? He said, because he got us jobs. So there was the German people, hardworking, intelligent, hmm. and they traded their souls for jobs to put Hitler in power. And we have to remember that in our own situations. We have tight times in the United States. Don't trade our essential freedoms and, and our strength of our great American government system and our democracy for short-term gains. Definitely some wise words there in, uh, in history has a unique way of um, repeating itself, you know, unless you learn those tough lessons. So let's just say I'm a, I'm a young NCO and uh, I've seen a tour or two in, in a combat situation and I'm back home and, and things aren't, they're not working out. I'm in a bad place, you know, relying on your own experience as an officer and combat experience. What would you tell that person? Well, first off, he's got suicide issues. And right now, well, we're losing 22 veterans a day to committing suicide. There's issues. They need to get help. And the VA is offering a crisis line where you can get psychological help. Just, just call on them on that and I'll get them to help right away. And the other thing is join your local veterans organizations. Get active with the BFW, the Veterans for Common Sense. That's a local organization here that you're in. That's right. And get with these guys that have been there and shared the same sort of pressures. And you're with a, a camaraderie with people that have walked the same road you've walked and experienced the same things you've walked. And they can provide help, provide a local support system for you. That's a, definitely some good advice. And yeah, we know about those dark places. And you're so right, Kevin. We're losing a lot of young people. Um, and probably because they're not obviously not reaching out and they're not realizing that they're not alone. So I think that's some great advice. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have a personal mantra or a personal inspirational, your own quote, maybe somebody else's that you live by every day? Well, I'll just basically go with the thing that the basic teachings of Christ and he said, there's only two, two things you need to do. It's more important, he said, than all the sacrifices and, and offerings. He said, that's love God and love your neighbor. And everything thing after that is man-made stuff. You know, that's powerful and still resonates today. You know, I've had so many people tell me it's all about the love. That love, when I was having my own difficulties with my wife, a friend of mine said, John, Love always wins. And if it comes from the heart, you can't fake it. So some great advice. So how how um how can people find out more about your company? Where do they need to go? And uh, if you wanted to put out contact information, where do they find you, Kevin? Well, just get online, apollosunguard.com. And that, they, that's all they need to know, apollosunguard.com. And contact us. Our telephone numbers are there. You call me. I'll be glad to pick up any phone. Anytime. Well, you think you know? Thank you for being here. I think we spent like six hours just getting this <laughs> one hour ready. And uh, I know that you're very active in local. You know, thanks for local workers. And I know that you're very active in the local economy. And again, I've seen your products, and they're extremely uh, innovative. And uh, you're one hell of an advocate 
for the veterans. Um, is there any final thought here? Well, there's one other thing that Jesus said. Peter said to him, Lord, how many times should we forgive them, Lord? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, not seven times. No, seven times, 70. <laughs> Poor good advice. So there you go. So, you know, I'm very humbled and honored to have you here, Kevin, today on Straight Out of Combat Radio. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Conley, Special Forces um, Combat Veteran, Vietnam War. And I look forward to our next conversation. If there's anything we can do to help. It's, oh, by the way, just want to let everybody know that Apollo Sun Guard was one of the first companies to support our mission at Green Zone Hero. Kevin has not hesitated. He, uh, he saw our mission of trying to support companies that support veterans. And he didn't just join for one year. He's joined for three years. And I got to tell you this. It means a lot. It means a lot to the people uh, of America. It means a lot to your customers. It means a lot to me personally. So thank you. You're welcome. There's one little thing I'd like to. Sure. This federal government, in order to help uh, service-disabled veteran-owned businesses, and basically because of Agent Orange exposure in Vietnam, Apollo Sun Guard is classified as a service-disabled veteran-owned business. The federal government has said that 3% of federal procurement should be from such companies. Uh, it helps us a bit. But companies, uh, other states that follow, California sent 3% of their procurement, state procurement, will, do, will go to those companies. And other, other states, Michigan, Illinois, same rules. Then you come to New York, and New York says 3%? No, we'll do 6%. Hmm. Then you come, sadly, to Florida. And Florida has no set-asides. Florida says that in the event of a tie between a service-disabled veteran-owned business and another contractor, the tie will go to the veteran. So if the other contractor is a dollar cheaper, he gets it. It just doesn't make sense to me. So here I'm going to go. I'm going to put a plug out there. So if you are a homeowner or a commercial business owner and you have no trees in your parking lot or you're looking for shade on your patio, I'm telling you right now, you got to go to ApolloSunGuard.com and Kevin and his crew of quality people that care about their product and they care about you as a customer, give them the business. And not only that, they're a green zone hero and a service disabled veteran owned company. Are you kidding me? Why would anybody looking for those types of products not do business with you? I, I just, I don't get it. And I'm not being paid to do that. So anyhow, thanks Kevin for being here. You're welcome. I just have one other comment. Okay, let's do it. You, we got we got a little bit of time. About, and I won't mention the name of the county either. Okay. But, but it wasn't Sarasota. Okay. Uh, a few months ago, we lost a contract to an out-of-state company for providing shade for a particular school district in the central part of Florida. And they went to a out-of-state contractor who makes his product in Mexico. They awarded the contract to them instead of us. And when we pointed out that their bid requirements called for a 10-year warranty, and we gave a 15-year warranty, and the winning bid was only a six-year warranty, they invalidated the bid, went out to bid, and lowered the warranty requirements to six, six years and gave it to the Mexican company. You know, and there you go. And then you wonder why things fall apart. You know, I mean, they're industrial people, but, you know, but... The, I get it. So well, when you take Florida tax dollars and you spend it with out-of-state contractors, you're taking Florida revenue and enriching somebody else's economy. And you know what's interesting about that? This is an interesting show today. We've talked about a lot of things outside of the scope, but this is all good because it's real conversation. Here we are, one of the sunniest states in, out of all 50 states. And what you just described to me is just kind of crazy. You know, it's ridiculous to think that in the sunniest state, now aren't we called the Sunshine State? Sunshine state. In the sunniest state in the in the Union, fifty states. You know, we got Puerto Rico; they've got a lot of sun too. But that we can't get contracts to stay home. Yeah. You know, all for a few pennies, um, and even to wow, this could this show could get really interesting. Even to manipulate the contract to be able to accept the bid from a company where the revenues lead the state is is it a county we know? <laughs> Well, it's not, fortunately, it's not 
It's not our county. It's not our county, and it's not on the uh, Gulf Coast. It's an internal central Florida county. They just don't get it. Wake up, America. Come on. Let's go. Let's keep the money here. And um, Well, why you mention that? We did a quick study to see we're just a small little manufacturing company, but we buy from over 100 small little companies of all sizes and shapes in the region around us. So, so it's really American-made, and it's, American. you know, yeah. We support the local industries. Because that's the glory of manufacturers. We make a product that leaves the area, but we support. Isn't, isn't that the way it used to be before? That's before they decided to send everything to China. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can bring some stuff back home. And we are, and you are doing a great job of it. And, I, and I've said this before, you know, I've visited your factory. I'm sitting in the office of the factory, but I've gone out there. It's amazing because I've talked to some of your employees and there's an atmosphere here that I would have to say um, intense pride and, uh, I can tell you're running a, a tight operation, and it, it's just nice to be here. So it's great being here, John. I yeah. deeply appreciate all right spending this time with you. All right, Kim, we finally did it, man. Let's hope this one goes through. But I uh, appreciate you. God bless America, and God bless you. And thanks for your service to our country. It means a lot. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken.